back to another episode of Public Problems. Today, uh, once again, I'm with a number of Bush School students. Uh, these students have been taking my course in the fall of 2018. And for the first half of the semester, they have been working on a research project of their choosing that addresses some major public policy issue or public problem. And today we're going to talk through their uh, report and what they found with you. But before we do that, I'd like to give the group an opportunity to introduce themselves. Christian Pinheiro. Carolyn Smith. Edgar Insignia. James Baldwin. AJ Leinberger. All right. Thank you all uh, so much for your work, and thank you for your willingness to have a conversation and allowing me to share it with the broader public. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about your your issue today. Your report is titled The Impact of Gun Policy in America, Empirical Overview, Analysis, and Recommendations to the Stand Your Ground Law and Its Effects on Communities. So you didn't shy away from controversy. Kudos to you. Um, so what made you interested? You could pick anything you wanted for this project, as you all know, and you uh, were interested in gun policy. Why is that? I think one of the first things we, when we were deciding what topic to choose is that we wanted to choose something that was really impactful in modern contemporary um, problems. And gun violence is something that has not been, you know, it's it's been a, something that's been going on for decades and Right now, especially in recent history, it's been um, more prevalent with you know the impact of gun shootings and just uh, increase in, in city violence and whatnot. So, taking this point and and kind of diving deeper into you know why the violence happens, what uh, some of the policies that are surrounded, was kind of a, a win for all of us. Also, uh, stand your ground laws are are relatively recent, and um, we just. Uh, wanted to look at kind of the history behind it and why, uh, how it kind of developed into what it is today. So. so before we dive into some of the specifics, give me a little bit, uh, one of the things that I think is challenging about this issue because it's so politicized is how much violence is there from guns and how does that compare to previous times? Is, is gun violence... Mass shootings, I think, uh, we have evidence for are more common, I think defined as three or more people being shot. Um, but overall, gun violence, how, particularly here in the U.S., um, what, is the, what is the picture of gun violence? So one of the main things that we'd like to point out is like the Brady Campaign. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that advocates for like background checks mainly for um, gun violence. And... According to the Brady campaign, 342 individuals are shot um, per day in the United States. Uh, five of those 342 individuals are shot due to legal intervention, and one of those five individuals are actually killed during that time. Okay. So um, we've looked at stand-your-ground states and duty-to-retreat states um, to compare the rate of homicide, justifiable homicides that occur in those states. And we noticed that in Florida, the um, justifiable homicide rate has increased by 200% since the passing of the Stand Your Ground Law in 2005. Kentucky has increased by 725%, and Texas has increased by 83%. Okay, so there's a few things, a few terms there that we'll need to get into. But the basic argument there is that in states with Stand Your Ground Laws, you're seeing an increase in the uh, amount of justifiable homicides in particular. Right, and in duty to retreat states, um, their overall has been a 5% decrease. 
Got since it. 2005. And also to your general point, um, America has um, higher gun ownership rates and higher um, gun violence rates than most country, most other countries. Um, so just just by looking at the numbers, gun ownership and gun gun violence overall is just a lot higher than most countries. So um, the idea is that we own a lot of guns as a, as a society, and so the the potential for gun violence just from sheer numbers of guns is something that's a bit of a challenge. Yes. Okay, so we were mentioning uh, different types of gun laws there that the audience might not be familiar with. Stand your ground, they might be familiar with, um, but duty re duty to retreat is maybe not one that people would be familiar with. So any one of the first things you tackle in your report is just an overview of the gun laws in America. And so how have we, how do we approach, how have we approached this regulation, this regulating of guns? Um, so I think it's, it's kind of important to understand um, gun violence in general uh, has kind of developed into uh, stand your ground laws. And there's been a, a lot of like push and pull and um, the U.S. from, from like pre-revolutionary uh, war times, uh, there was a lot of responsibilities for uh, citizens uh, carrying guns in the militia. Um, and there was uh, frontier tradition, and that, um, after the Revolutionary War times, kind of grew into um, self-protection. Mm -hmm. And um, so gun ownership, just beginning through those times, has just kind of grown and been passed down through generations. And uh, uh, really, in, I guess, the early 1900s, you you sort of start to see um, uh, where gun policy starts to make its way into our, our country. Um, so you have the National Firearms Act in uh, 1934, um, and that imposed a tax on manufacturing, sell, selling, and transporting um, specific guns. And um, in 1968, you had a, a big gun control act passed by um, LBJ, um, in response to the assassinations of JFK and MLK. Um, but you had uh, the NRA back in the 1800s, um, primarily formed as a hunting and marksman group. Um, but you can kind of see as these gun control acts uh, start to pass with um, increased uh, violence uh, you see that uh, you really begin to see like the NRA becomes uh, kind of transforms from that uh, hunting and marksman group into more of a powerful lobbying organization. Mm -hmm. And so in the 1980s, you also had like the Firearm Owners Protection Act, and uh, that provided protection for gun owners and kind of loosened some regulations. So you can kind of see there's a push and pull with like um, some of these gun control acts, and then you kind of have the NRA um, responding to that and some legislation that kind of pulls back. Um, so you, you kind of start to see some pendulum swings in policy. Um, and we had uh, temporary, temporary assault weapons ban in 2004, 
1994 that expired in 2004. Mm -hmm. And then Florida passed the first stand-your-ground law in 2005. And so you really, from that point, start to see things turn a little bit. But at, at a bunch of points in our history, you just see things kind of evolve. Um, and gun ownership just just kind of increases in the idea of like self-protection, um, just kind of as, especially as more gun control legislation is passed, uh, the idea of self-protection and uh, bearing more arms kind of becomes more popular. Mm -hmm. So it, some of the early regulations going back, well, I mean, some of the earliest regulation, right, is the Constitution itself, right, and the Second Amendment, right, uh, which protects the right to uh, gun ownerships on some dimensions, right? And then as there are both kind of um, moments of time where there's a lot of violence versus moments of times where there's kind of reactions to the fact that there were lots of violence, how we respond from a gun policy standpoint has kind of changed over time. Excellent. So what are the two, uh, earlier we were talking about uh, the stay in your ground versus the duty to retreat. And so is this a new, is this a pretty new phenomenon, these types of policies? Stand your ground is one I'm familiar with, but I'm also less familiar with this duty to retreat. So tell me about it. Okay, so when we talk about stay your ground, duty to retreat, uh, we also have to talk about council adoption and how all of them correlate to each other. Okay. Uh, council adoption is one of those things that come from like the old common law. So that's more so England and this man's all the way back to the Middle Ages. Like say for instance, castle doctrine. Mm -hmm. So somebody coming into your castle and you being having the right to protect yourself, which transfer into American society. When we see a person having the right to protect their home or their environment or whatever, um, they're most conducive to being safe, I guess. Um, you look at duties to retreat. Uh, due to retreat is not really a legal doctrine. It's more so like a legal precedence where uh, uh, I think we'll talk about it more so later in the in this experience. <coughs> but, uh, starting with, like with the RMB state in 1876, um, the court passed a um, legal precedent saying um, you do not have the right to take someone's life just for mere trespass or even to save life where the assault is provoked. Basically saying if you provoke someone, then you don't have the right to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's more so with the duty to retreat. If you know you're in danger, you have the you have the legal obligation to retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, Staying ground laws really came to place more so with the inability to defend yourself in things that was like surprise attacks. So let's like say, for instance, I was in a brawl and I just happened to kill somebody, then I would have the right to stand my ground being that I was in danger and I couldn't retreat in that immediate event, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think more broadly, um, if we look at English common law, of course, we're like James already said, um, we're looking at like the castle doctrine. So if someone is actually intruding in your home, you have the right to, um, to use lethal force against that person. Because if you're not safe in your own home, where are you actually safe? Uh -huh. um, the duty to retreat is more so for um, public events, things that uh, might happen outside of the house, which also includes the property surrounding your house. So Castle Doctrine doesn't actually allow um, individuals to use legal or lethal force, I'm sorry, to um, or against those people that are just simply on your land. You have a duty to try to actually leave your home and go somewhere else before using that force. Um, and the standard ground law, which is 
the most recent of the three is basically the extension of the castle doctrine outside of the home. So any place that you are legally allowed to be is a place that you are allowed to defend yourself. So does it have to be the one of the differences in the standard doesn't need to be your personal property. Correct. It's if you can't, uh, wherever you are, you have the right to defend right. yourself. Right. And do these standards, are these standards playing out in different states? Are they, are they codified in like at the federal level? Where is the variance? These things seem to be in conflict, right? These are different standards for when it's okay to use a, uh, use lethal force. Um, are the standards, um, enforced differently across the different states in the country? Is it pretty uniform? What's the what's the terrain there? Okay, so um, one thing that we did notice, and then we look at the development of the United States, when the states came to the Union, they pretty much made their own like constitution for the state. Mm-hmm. So the variance among how the policies were implemented is really different compared to like how the state came in. Like if it was a slave state or if it was a, a free state, like slave states were more so uh, after the passage of um, the 13th Amendment, slaves were free. You have when you look at policies like standing ground law, they're put in place more so to protect like the property, or like more so more general. Uh, one part of standing ground laws that women weren't able to um, actually defend themselves against their husbands. So it's like just the way that it's implemented is based off the development of that county or that system. Mm-hmm. So there's lots there's lots of variance in other words. Right. And there, to go back on what James is also saying, when we were going back towards the stand your ground when it was implemented in 2005, since then in 06, the following year, 22 states have implemented those laws, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Michigan, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and South Dakota. So if you have memorized that list, I would be really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not, it's not obviously, you know, a, a precedent set you know, uh, on a national level, there are various various states. Um, New York and, and Virginia, for example, don't have those standard ground uh, policies. Um, but when we dive deeper into the research, we also found that the, those states that don't have those laws incorporated see uh, a decrease in homicidal firearm deaths. And the ones that do incorporate standard ground laws have seen a relative increase with Florida and, and um, certain other states like Kentucky seeing a much more greater increase than others. So there is some disparity, but so the stand your ground, uh, sorry, the stand your ground has spread quickly, but still only in a minority of states, roughly, right. but pretty close to becoming a majority, 22, 23, yeah. something like that. So pretty close to half. Pretty close to half. So, okay, I think I understand the difference in the standards of when it's okay to use lethal force. Did you focus on other aspects of gun policy uh, outside of these standards? Are there other issues with the gun laws in America that the audience should be aware of that you covered? Or is it mostly you're focusing on these different standards and the utility of these different standards? So I think what we really focused on was the um, impact that the gun policies had on firearm-related homicide. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we can provide some of the statistics for that, such as like standing ground. In Florida, we provide a case study of how the law actually impacted Florida over the last 10 years since its implementation. Like the reason we use Florida more so is just because we can understand the context by which the law was implemented. Uh, we can understand how effective it's been, and we can understand why other states have taken like similar mm-hmm. uh, measures. Well, maybe tell me a little bit about the Florida case then, and what you learned, what all pieces of information you were able to get about 
the rollout of the or the the use of this policy and the impact of it on Florida. I mean, the state ground law is defined as allowing the use of deadly force without first retreating when victims believe they face the risk of death or bodily harm. Um, as we all went through it, I think we all sort of agreed that, it's, and we agree with most researchers that it's an extension of the council doctrine, on um, which places victims well in places where victims have the right to be. Um, I think Alex is really. I say Alex. <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew really covered it a lot also in the research when he uh, talked about the self-defense expanded based on colonialism, um, ex expanded off of legalized slavery, and then legal doctrine of coverture. That's more so just the uh, women's right to defend herself from her husband. So, I mean, yeah, you know, so pitch in. kind of how we were talking about earlier is that a lot of the um, stand your ground cases we've seen were, uh, you know, built from this, this history of... Uh, uh, protectionism, but um, as we were talking about, um, it kind of was more legalized for like the most privileged, and not all not all people were like entitled to the same protections in practice because we've seen that like um, in Florida after the passage of Stand Your Ground, uh, firearm homicides homicides um, increased. And we saw a lot of um, racial disparities uh, in that data too. Um, and one one of the things we we noted about the law um, was that um, it's um, it, in Florida they have a, a part of the law that uh, says that puts the burden of proof uh, shifted to the prosecution. So uh, with Stand Your Ground in Florida, it, it became that you have to disprove that someone uh, wasn't, was defending themselves. So it, it kind of, for some people, uh, led to, it led to exacer exacerbated firearm rate, uh, firearm homicide rates because uh, a lot of people could could use the standard ground law and kind of get away with it with that having that uh, shifted the burden of proof shifted to the prosecution um, but also um, as I was saying a lot of uh, there was a lot of racial implications to this policy and sometimes uh, what classifies as a threat is pretty subjective to uh, uh, some people so there are certain assumptions about uh, who, uh, who's criminal and what a criminal threat may be. And so with, with this increased self-defense of stand your ground, <coughs> threats kind of become more ambiguous. So that was kind of one of the consequences we saw of the law is that, um, you know, threats are really subjective. So it kind of, if people think they're being threatened, they can use this force and they have basically the burden of proof on their side. All right. So one of the things that we really, um, I think the with the case study, we focused on a specific case in uh, 2012, Trayvon Martin. Uh, so the reason that we said for the standing ground law again is because the duty to retreat is ineffective in cases of immediate threats. So um, we talk about Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. Um, in February 26, 2012, 
Um, George Zimmerman called 911. He reported a suspicious person, later reported as Trayvon Martin. Uh, 911 specifically asked him not to approach this person. However, uh, George Zimmerman disregarded these instructions and uh, he engaged Trayvon Martin. Um, the altercation re resulted in the death of a teenage unarmed black male and in the in exemption from prosecution for a person using lethal self defense in response to a reasonable threat. Um, the reason why uh, the problems with standing ground law in this case was that, uh, like Andrew was just saying, the shift of the burden of proof. <laughs> uh, Harvard lecturer Karen Light stated that people perceived to be a threat are disproportionately black. Um, like Andrew just said again, it, the threat is subjective. And looking at the, the racial underpinnings of it, um, I think, again, Harvard lecturer Carolyn Light also handed on um, the do-it-yourself security type of citizenship. Uh, she basically said, um, societies dominate assumptions about who is criminal stranger and a criminal threat and are likely to decide the outcomes of these cases. So basically, if I can prove that um, or society feels like a certain population of people or um, a certain look or a certain um, mannerisms or actions are um, a threat or they seem like they may be uh, potentially a threat, then we have the right to act on them. Um, one of the people who actually co who helped co-author the same ground law is Dennis Baxley. Uh, he believed that people shouldn't be concerned about being in trouble for doing the right thing. Um, they sort of called that the do-it-yourself security citizenship again, but uh, it refers to the necessity of protecting oneself, and by protecting yourself, you make everyone else safer. Uh, I feel like basically um, it's really subjective. I, I can't really hit on that enough because, um, like Andrew was just saying, with the ambiguousness, ambiguousness of it, it's like, it's really, if I feel like you're guilty, then I have the right to act on it. And then once we go to court, the prosecutor has to prove that I was not in harm's way. Mm -hmm. And there's no really way to prove it if the person who's kind of, you know, defending the prosecution is dead. So the, the standard really is the issue here of, of the of what's what's a threat right. and then we know from uh, other types of research that uh, uh, minority men are more likely to be perceived by a threat by society and really by other minority men uh, as well and so you can imagine if you give the, the threat as the standard and you change the burden of proof you're going to end up with what we call kind of false positives, right? Where people are, because they're afraid of a certain type of person, uh, being around that type of person invokes a belief of a legitimate threat. Sometimes it might be legitimate, sometimes it's maybe not. And this is maybe a case where it was a harder uh, harder case to make that he was a legitimate threat, although that's what the disagreement was about, right? And so it, it, um, it brings into a, a decent amount of subjectivity, uh, subjectivity and changing a burden of proof when it comes to lethal force, which is is a bit of a challenge, I think. So, how does this compare to places where the Castle Doctrine is uh, is still in place? I think my understanding from the report is you look at a comparison of a few other states with Florida that are using the Castle Doctrine. So, maybe tell me a little bit about that as well. So, the Castle Doctrine, uh, like as mentioned before, is uh, just where the standing ground laws kind of stem from. Mm -hmm. uh, the standing ground, 
stand your ground laws are essentially just a stricter version of the castle doctrine and but they uh, we found that there are similar um, homicidal rates in uh, states that have the castle doctrine specifically uh, because the castle doctrine still kind of gets rid of that duty to retreat um, so we found that they're, they're, they're very similar, although standard ground laws do have a lot more, um, it's a lot more severe, like the, the changes are a lot more significant, and uh, so that's where we start seeing more of the uh, impact with minorities, and then uh, we, all, oh, we also found that in, it happens in a lot more, or increased violent crimes in general, and like especially um, homicides in suburban areas as well so and that comes more with the standard ground laws as opposed to the casual doctrine um, it's kind of hard to um, kind of get a solidified um, analysis because states kind of have more stricter or not as strict castle doctrine laws um, some have like a mixture of duty to retreat and a mixture of castle doctrine laws so um, some have just full castle doctrine and some extend castle doctrine to include your own property so it's kind of hard to get an exact analysis but we found that this more strict the or yeah the more uh, strict that they are with castle doctrine uh, the more of an increase there is with homicides um, and justifiable homicides, which in general, justifiable homicides is very hard to use to analysis because not a lot of justifiable homicides are reported or accurately placed as a justifiable homicide. So that also leads to faulty research sometimes. So um, in terms of like the castle doctrine, it's very hard to kind of get a silified analysis, but in general, they do have um, very similar rates of homicides as the standard ground laws. Is like, uh, like you were saying, a lot of states that have different policies are like a little bit of a mix of both, and it's basically like duty to retreat, castle, castle doctrine in the middle, and then stand your ground, and the closer states were to like duty to retreat, we saw like the less homicides yeah. they had, but the further they lean toward uh, stricter standard ground laws than uh, the more firearm homicides we found. And also how he just stated uh, how <laughs> the um, difference in clarif like clarifying or like the clarification of um, if it's a justifiable homicide or not. Uh, it was a study done by Texas A&M, two professors from here. Um, they actually argued that self-defense laws actually do affect gun violence rates. But they concluded that it has an additional 361 legally justified homicides due to like the castle doctrine. But like I say, the difference in how people classify justifiable homicides, or if they're considered, uh, if they're considered um, gun violence, another study, a study released by Pennsylvania released, showed a decrease in like crime due to, due to retreat. Um, it went from 391 down to 329 per 100,000 people before and after the law. Um, these decreased rates were found in the number of murders and burglaries across the state also, but the researchers were, they weren't able to prove that correlation actually caused causation mm -hmm. or, this, or if they were the same thing.
the way I see this from how you're describing it to me is there's a, at least on this dimension of justified homicides, it goes from duty to retreat seems to minimize those with the castle doctrine sort of having more and more similar to stand your ground um, in terms of outcomes with respect to justifiable homicides and then stand your ground when you extend that kind of right of standing your ground outside of your home and into public, we have more justifiable homicides. Did, as part of this, did you look at any other measures of violence other than justifiable homicide? Is this related to any any other violence indicators across these states, or was that something y'all looked into? So not just justifiable homicides. I think we focus on it more so in the duty to retreat states versus the same ground states. Uh, we didn't just do justifiable homicides. We looked at the impact that they had on overall gun violence in the entire states. So um, just some statistics, and uh, if you could turn to retreat states. Um, in 2005, uh, that was the year the first thing ground law was passed in the state of Florida. In 2016, we actually said like um, a 10-year difference or over 10-year difference, so we chose 2016. Um, in, tw in 2005, between the 15 states that are listed as staying ground states, there were um, 3,338 firearm-related deaths. In 2016, that number increased to 4,032 firearm-related deaths, an almost 21% increase. Um, we look at figure eight, the difference in that one, figure seven is that figure eight actually shows the states for staying, shows the staying ground states. So in those you see in 2005, of the 25 states listed as staying ground states, there were approximately 17,305 firearm-related deaths. In 2016, the number of firearm deaths increased to 23,705, a 35% increase. Now, the significance of this is, according to the data we collected from the National Violence Statistics Reports and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, see, uh, there were approximately 30,054 firearm-related deaths in 2005 and approximately 38,551 in 2016, a 26% increase. So you can pretty much see that in the duty-to-retreat states, uh, the increase in firearm-related deaths wasn't nearly as big as the increase in the United States as a whole, and then comparing that to the staying ground states, that's just a whole different number. Um, of those 38,551 deaths across the whole United States, 61% of those came from staying ground states. 10, I mean, 10.5% came from duty to retreat states, and the other 28% came from states that have a legal presence for staying ground, but they don't really have staying ground. So, like, when I say legal presidents, I'm tracing that back to, like, the Beard versus United States. Mm -hmm. um, that's, like, the law that first, well, the first legal president that actually codified the um, staying ground. Uh, they, the court basically ruled a man assailed on his own grounds without provoke, provocation by a person armed with a deadly weapon and apparently seeking his life is not obliged to retreat but may stand his ground and defend himself. So that's pretty much the first part, the first like legal court case and that happened on the Supreme Court. So when I say like a state having legal precedence for it, it's them using the Supreme Court case to basically determine if a person has the right to stand their ground. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, just to add on a little bit, um, the A&M study we looked at, they, they tried to look at um, in those, they looked at uh, states that extended uh, castle doctrine or stand your ground between I believe it was 2005 and 2012, so that was when a lot of states, that's when Florida first had stand your ground, and then a lot of states 
implemented it, and uh, they they tried to look at um, if there was evidence that um, it was deterring crime, and they couldn't find evidence that it was deterring crime, but they could find that there would be like a net increase in homicides. So um, they they kind of tried to look at if it from another angle if it would really be like impacting crime, but really the best best way we found to look at it and what most research, the way most research looks looks at it is those number of firearm homicides. I think it's also important to note that um, I actually did some research on um, the FBI posted a report called 250 active shooter incidents in the United States from 2000 to 2017. Um, so an active shooting is um, basically when a person in a public place utilizes um, their right to have a gun or not or not their right to have a gun um, they just do it anyway and um, they have the intention of firing this weapon um, to harm or kill but not with the intention of a specific person or in self-defense um, and since the year 2000 there have actually been 250 active shooter incidents in the United States and 206 of those occurred after the initial stand your ground law adoption in 2005 which resulted in 2016 casualties so we can see a, certainly an overall trend of increased violence in these states. When I'm looking at these graphs, um, pretty much every state's total number, these aren't per capita numbers, but total number in pretty much every state across, um, across the duty to retreat states and the stand your ground states, the violence increases except for uh, maybe Connecticut here. Yep, that's the only um, state. But that in the, was that? That's the only state. <laughs> yeah, that's the only one that I'm seeing. But that they increased more dramatically, more significantly across st states with their stand your ground laws. And it's funny because um, Dennis Baxter, the guy who um, actually wrote the Florida stand your ground law, he actually claimed that gun rates would go down. But after the ground law was passed, the numbers peaked in 2007 as like firearm-related homicides, but it hasn't decreased back to the rates that it was in 2005 yet. It's been a steady increase. To dive deeper and more into those, the, specifically what the Florida state's the statistics are, before the standing ground laws were passed in the state, there was uh, 0.29 deaths per 100,000 people for firearms. And then the year after, when the law was passed, that number jumped from 10 deaths to 100,000. It has risen to 12.6 uh, in 2016. So to like put numbers to what James is, is putting at, there has been a significant increase over that decade time um, where deaths have just been rising. So it's, it's obviously very significant. So what do we do about this? What are your solutions or recommendations? It's, it seems like a, based on the argument you're making, um, there seems to be a pretty identifiable difference between the amount of violence and or the increase of violence in states that are using stand your ground versus duty to retreat. So I assume your solution might have something to do with that. <laughs> yeah. um, but what else can you tell me? What can you tell me about the solution you recommend and then just general approaches to helping decrease uh, gun violence that you arrive at at the end of your report? Well, I think the first before going into the solutions, the policy issues that were really critical to decide what were the best uh, uh, approaches to go to were. Mm -hmm. 
uh, that standing ground laws make the idea of threat to your life subjective and self-defined by individuals. So as we have been speaking the, this entire time, basically the subjectivity of what standing ground really means. Um, what we didn't touch on too much, which I, I, I can provide some information on, are the negative impacts that it, it has for minorities. Um, in the overall sense, violence has increased, but they've dramatically increased for specifically African Americans, where 73% of defendants who were killed by a black person went free in terms of uh, the court cases decisions, compared to 59% of those who were killed by a white person. So, um, And then, of course, weapon comparison, uh, victims who with 19, I mean, sorry, 19 victims were uh, carrying guns during altercations during with standard ground precedent, and 135 were unarmed, whereas the accused, it was the opposite, where 121 were armed with a weapon and then 18 were unarmed. So this disparity from race is also a very big impact that we have to look into. That's more than just a gun violence issue. It's also a race uh, issue also. Uh, and then the third policy issue is that the uh, standard ground law entices people to want to choose to stand their ground even when there's no opportunity to retreat. So it's more of this fundamental American ideal where, you know, if you have the opportunity to pull your weapon, might as well do so than to not do it at all. Um, so we kind of take that, that mentality is something that's hard to justify in that regard. And it's funny, um, it's just funny how you say that and then you look at uh, how Andrew, what he pointed earlier about just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, that's something that, aside from the case study that we do with Trayvon Martin, and Christian actually did a lot of the work on this part with, um, and it's actually part of the reason why we chose this case is because of the recent uh, standing ground law lawsuit that actually took place with um, Marquise McLuffin on July 19th this year. Uh, this was the case where he uh, he put up to the the corner store. He had his child and he was in the car with his girlfriend and he was parked inside of a handicapped spot and went to the store. Um, when he came out. Um, a guy, Michael Dretschko, was actually against his car, like pushing on the car, like berating his girlfriend. And when he came out, he pushed the guy to the ground. So uh, the guy actually wound up shooting him for pushing him to the ground. But it's one of those things where uh, even though he was the person who instigated the situation, because he felt like he was in harm, he was able to shoot somebody. And when the sheriff actually came time to arrest him, he wasn't able to arrest him because the guy invoked to stand your right, stand your ground right, and was able to protect yourself from the law in that incident. Uh, it's sort of interesting because the county sheriff, Bob Gallateri, uh, actually was the guy who analyzed the tape and, and um, presented in front of the court that when he was pushed to the ground, he actually paused and he took time to actually think about if he wanted to um, actually pull his gun out, and when he did, in that instant, he made a decision to take someone's life instead of his, instead of invoking the duty to retreat. So it's pretty much how we talked about earlier, that do-it-yourself kind of mindset inside the standing ground states where a person will choose to kill someone instead of retreat. And that sort of goes back to the um, first case that we mentioned, Earn v. State, with the duty to retreat, where the guy actually told his neighbor somebody would come and try to attack him. And instead of him retreating or trying to resolve the situation, he actually waited for the person with the gun and shot the guy and wound up going to jail because the court said he did have a legal, a legal obligation to retreat instead of invoke a same ground type of response. Mm -hmm. so, so, oh. Yeah, go ahead. I, I would just, so um, this threat to your life uh, being subjective is a challenge for the standing your ground laws. Um, empirically, it has uh, been 
uh, maybe more misused towards minorities, at least in the disparity of being unarmed um, and uh, the number of shootings and the kind of norm that it sets for uh, encouraging people to stand your ground when maybe a choice would be to retreat. Um, so given those issues, what do we, uh, what kind of recommendations do you have? So we actually proposed three key policy solutions um, just to make it various, um, just because we know people's preferences in the state level and federal level can get you know, really murky. Um, the first one is a little bit kind of outreach, but it's we, we would want to propose a federal statute that requires states to incorporate duty to retreat tactics in any public setting and have a castle doctrine be applied to when someone is involved in the property. And so right now it's only on state decisions on whether who can incorporate those laws, but if it was a federal statute, we would eliminate the stand your ground uh, law uh, totally for nationally, um, and then have just duty to retreat and castle doctrine to be the only recommended solutions mm -hmm. to those things. Of course, that defies a lot of Second Amendment believers and you know staunch supporters of gun rights and whatnot. So that would be uh, a hard sell on the state level. But if that could be passed, that would that would definitely decrease a lot of the issues we have. Um, and the second one, if we the second solution we propose is a little bit more uh, a win-win solution for both parties. So we would uh, want to propose to amend or adjust state policies to both limit gun owners to just one contact shot and restrict shots to only non-vital bodily areas such as like the shoulder, the arm, or the foot engaged in a threatening scenario. So um, obviously this would uh, um, encourage those with weapons to be more trained, of course, in terms of making sure they actually know how to use the weapon properly. Um, and applying these restrictions would still give them the legality to defend themselves when necessary, but not have to kill someone, you know, verbatim for mm -hmm. a particular situation. So um, we, we try to have the middle ground in that regard. We think that's probably a fair, justifiable solution that could possibly be enacted. So, so that's two. Yes. And then the third one is kind of just an overall um, gun violence solution that has been incorporate a lot in rhetoric from politicians we've heard. So just to continue propose strict background checks for firearm owners, uh, initiate mandatory firearm trainings per year, and keep records to track history of violent behavior. So uh, just an overall keeping weapons out of the hands of as much people as possible. Those who are qualified can have weapons if they meet these following restrictions or qualifications. Those who are deemed unnecessary, or not necessary, but those who are deemed uh, like unable to be, you know, have those restrictions, whether it's a mental issue or some history of, of violence, we could uh, make sure that they don't keep them and, on the streets. Sorry, I didn't know you're um, I think with the third, the third solution to, um, there's a lot of current, um, you know, a lot of people support like background checks and and things that can help contribute to overall gun violence. But there's there are some loopholes, you know. Um, there are some some ways where you can um, um, uh, incomplete. You can have an incomplete background check after the three day waiting period, and in some cases, uh, those people who want to purchase guns can get guns. So there are some things with uh, this proposal that can like also be shored up. Yeah, so I, I think these um, um, are interesting solutions. I think they are, given the evidence that we've seen, um, fairly reasonable. I mean, um, this idea of 
at least encouraging states to adopt the castle doctrine in the homes and duty to retreat in public seems like it could have the impact of decre decreasing the rise in justifiable homicides, which uh, seems like that has some value. Um, and having the standard focus on deliberate attempts of non-lethality seems, um, while it probably has its own ambiguities, right, how you would think about implementing that for sure, right? But just for that to be the norm that you should be not shooting to kill um, probably has some impact. Um, I would worry, again, a little bit about some of the ambiguity there. Um, but just changing the norm, I think, is useful. And this uh, policy solution three is one that, uh, in general, enjoys uh, wide support across the political spectrum, despite a lot of the debate you hear at the national level. In general, people are in favor of uh, strict background checks, um, firearm training with some regularity, and keeping record records of those with violent behavior or people that um, maybe uh, shouldn't have guns um, in society. Um, so I, this is uh, this is really well done. I like how you uh, took this issue and you didn't try to come up with a maybe to use a bad phrase, a silver bullet to how to solve this stuff. Um, but you came up with, hey, there's one piece of this that we can find a lot of evidence on. This this policy this policy leads to more homicides. This policy as a standard leads to less. It's not really talking about entering into a lot of the Second Amendment debate, like can you have a gun? Are you allowed to have one? It's talking about the standards at which you're allowed to use one. And so I like how you dive into the history how you talk about this specific policy uh, that has some good evidence with it, because, you know, this is one that I think people uh, on both sides often throw up their hands as feeling hopeless. And then the way it gets char uh, characterized or caricatured in the national debate is, um, is really frustrating, where I think there is more room for evidence-based improvements while protecting some of the most important held rights by people. Um, there's there's some middle ground here, I think, that, that's lost. And you do what I would suggest is a nice job laying out a potential path for a, a way that isn't really decreasing access to guns, um, but is a step from thinking about our legal standards to how we might tackle gun violence in particular. Um, is there anything else we're getting on the 45, 46-minute mark? Um, is there anything else that we haven't discussed or that you feel like hasn't been highlighted enough in this conversation that is an important part of your uh, report? This kind of just adds on to, uh, I guess, the third policy solution just uh, about, um, you know, strict background checks. Um, I think really just making gun, gun ownership a really involved responsibility. Um, you know, owning a gun is is uh, you should you should be a responsible gun owner um, if you're going to have one. So I think, you know, I think some advocacy could could help. And I think just just pushing pushing the idea of responsible gun ownership and maybe having um, uh, like self defense trainings, uh, background checks, all of that. I think just pushing the idea of responsible gun ownership even further would just help. And I think um, one thing we didn't really hit on was the stakeholders. Um, we didn't talk about like the NRA, 
like how Andrew talked about the hemp, and already started off with like a hunting recreational group, but as you see how it's evolved over time, it's more so a lobbying group. And with advocacy, we also have to take into consideration the advocacy on the part of those who are in favor of same ground laws and how that was the policy that gets the results that we have now. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, no, good stuff. Just, Go ahead. Just um, when we talk, like we talk about in class, how there are certain stakeholders with um, certain uh, incentives, gun manufacturers and the NRA, I think one of their biggest incentives is to make profit. So if, um, you know, not saying they, they want more killings, but if, if they can sell more guns, that's good for them. So um, I think that's kind of why they became such a powerful lobbying group, because they saw some opportunities to, right. to make profit, and they're kind of seizing on them. I also think it's important to highlight um, hospital personnel and nurses and doctors that work in emergency rooms and things like that. Um, actually, hospitals have seen a significant decrease in the or increase. I'm sorry, in the amount of traffic that they receive um, in senior ground states due to like just firearm related incidents, like whether that be death or just injury. And additionally, police officers um, have a key stake in these situations too because they're actually the ones that um, classify and interpret situations to determine whether or not you're using your legal right or not in certain situations. So um, I think having more clearly defined um, like things like as in our second policy solution where you can only shoot non-vital body parts, I think it's pretty easy to determine what's a non-vital body part. Mm -hmm. So it would be there would be less ambiguity there when interpreting those cases. Oh, one of that one more thing. Uh, Karen just hit on a really good point about um, police taking it, but also we have to look at the relationship that for certain minority groups who do feel disenfranchised by the law and their relationship with police officers. Because like two things that I've seen with the Trayvon Martin case and another with the Marquise McLuckin case is that although, and not more so with Trayvon Martin, but really with Marquise McLuckin was the sheriff actually wanted to arrest the guy, but he was legally bound from arresting him because of the same ground law. So we have to look at how police are also bound by the law from actually going through and actually providing justice. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I like that we brought in the stakeholder piece. I think that thinking through where the situation is uh, and why it's there has a lot to do with the various stakeholders and the <clears throat> NRA in particular. I mean, can't really talk about gun policy without talking about the NRA um, and uh, so I think that's an important player in this as well. Um, so, uh, well, this is good. Uh, thank you. And I hope that um, for the listeners that you're able to uh, take some time and evaluate some of this evidence and think about it for yourself. I think this is um, an important challenge, how we're going to handle gun violence and what type of policies are most reasonable for handling that while working to protect people's uh, rights to private uh, rights to private property and constitutional rights is something that we've really got to work through as a society. Um, so thanks for your thanks for your work on this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.